Today, I will be talking to Dr. Alexandra Solomon for a part two discussion. She is a clinical psychologist and professor at the Family Institute at Northwestern University. She is also the author of Loving Bravely, and I am thrilled to have her back again today. So, Alexandra, I'm so happy that we get to have a part two discussion about what we started in terms of talking about loving bravely. I think we really focused on um, our childhoods, how we carry our stories, and also how when we're raising our little children that we're really mindful around our discussions. And there were some great, great, you know, quotes that I wrote written down, but you talked about intergenerational kind of love discussions and, you know, parents listening more than they talk. And so learn so much from the first one. Today, though, I want to talk about um, some of the, the challenges, at least, that I see in my private practice and kind of have a real conversation around, um, I'm going to focus a lot on mothers on this one, but I want to focus on single moms. Um, I would say that, you know, at this point, almost one in four children are being raised by single mothers. And the first question I have for you when we're talking about being very self-reflective is how can a single mom make time to do this reflective work and find the energy to really even trust to love again, like loving after divorce or loving after being single for a long time? Right. Well, I love that you are um, devoting time and attention to single moms because I think that they, um, there's a way in which by bringing attention, loving and curious attention and focus on what it is to parent alone as a woman, just even that piece of it does something really important, which I think is um, kind of shedding or shifting away from a story that to be a single parent is somehow less than. You know, I think that can be so often the block to the things you're talking about, the block to loving again, the block to self-care is just sort of this quiet, heavy blanket that sometimes single parents carry with them everywhere, which is somehow that their experience or their journey is somehow less. And so I think that the work that you're doing um, is a really vital step towards just saying, we see you, we're with you, we care about you, and you deserve to care about you. So that's great. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I find that um, whether it is a single mom, I, I see moms of all types, right? Single moms, moms who have used infertility methods in order to start their own families, who they've been empowered enough to say, I, I couldn't wait any longer for a relationship, um, divorce. And I find that particularly moms who are single, who have been divorced, they carry around, some of them can carry around this sense of cynicism or this sense of, I'm going to do this on my own. And I, and I see these walls that are built up around them. And I wonder where, where do you begin with somebody who has experienced deep hurt, um, but you know that, that inside of them, they would love to have love again in their life. Right. Yes. I think that those, I think walls um, can be both really self-protective. And I think there is a time in the wake of heartbreak that a thick boundary makes sense. You know, it's really understandable. Um, and it is, I mean, that's the nature, that's the nature of pain. Like we know that breakups, divorces, endings hurt because they literally physiologically hurt. So our brains code 
emotional pain in the exact same places and spaces that our brains code physical pain. So hurt hurts. And um, so making real and validating that breakups and endings are really painful is an important first step. And then I do think that there is, I think that um, each person needs to be mindful of the risk of getting stuck there. And that word cynicism, I think, is a really, that tends to be kind of a clinical marker that I track with um, with people who are single again, especially, is sort of the cynicism. Because when we bring that cynicism into our dating lives, we're kind of, um, we're not really opening ourselves up. And it's not that, it's not like it's either cynicism or being a doormat, right? Just like wide open for any kind of business. There are lots and lots of shades of gray in there. And I oftentimes find it helpful to make a distinction for people who are single again, who are figuring out whether or not they're open to dipping their toe in the water, to do a gut check around fear versus love. Like, am I stepping back out into the dating world from a place of fear? Like, I'm afraid that nobody will love me again. I'm afraid that um, this is not going to work out versus love, which is a place of saying I'm worthy and I'm curious and I'm open. And that gut check can be can be really important. And I think that therapy, I think connection with friends can help us step back out from a place of feeling maybe not optimistic, but at least something a little bit more neutral than um, than cynical. So you just said something that just totally rocked my world. So I want to go back to this for a sec. You said, tell me if I just heard this right. Our brains code emotional pain the same as physical pain. (laughs) That's right. This is, yeah, this is true. So this is, um, so Sue Johnson, who Dr. Sue Johnson, who created the, um, the approach to couples therapy called emotion focused therapy. So she wrote this really, really wonderful book called Love Sense. And, you know, she weaves together attachment theory and brain physiology. And yeah, so she writes about this and she says that this is why um, women who have doulas during their childbirth, they will literally experience less physical pain because they have emotional support. And then on the flip side, people who are brokenhearted will feel a little bit less brokenhearted by taking like Advil. (laughs) So that is, there is a funky intersection of physiological and emotional pain that is worthy of our attention. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just, that's unbelievable. It doesn't, you know, when you say it and you think about it for a second, it's like, okay, I could see that happening, but I'd never heard that before. And, um, I think that's really validating for somebody in a very lonely or very heartbroken place to say, yeah, this is real. It's kind of like when, when we first heard those, maybe it was Prozac or something, those commercials that said depression hurts and right. It was the notion that, yeah, depression is not just up in your head. It does physically hurt. And, um, I will tell you, I think that at times it's one of the more challenging issues that I deal with is getting someone from a place, um, of deep hurt and maybe betrayal and maybe a sense of, you know, I'm just going to hunker down. Like you said, I'm going to be in my turtle shell and I'm not going to let anybody ever hurt me again and how I can really help move them out of a place. I I know that you, you said something I want you to talk to, 
talk about it more, but I know that for me, I try to start with connection with relationships that do feel safe. So your friendships, even if it's one friendship, but what can you say about, let's say again, for a single mom, the value and the priority on her female friendships in this, right. in this kind of case? Right. Well, here's the sort of double-edged sword of our sort of um, lady squads, if you will, is that they is that sometimes they they don't mean to, but they sometimes kind of reinforce a victim status, right? This sort of like he was crap, and you're better without him, and the best way to get over somebody is to get under somebody else. <laughs> so sometimes, sometimes our friends are trying to be helpful and and they they take sort of a fix it approach or they take a kind of a blaming approach versus a holding space approach. And I think this is a, you know, I think many of us lack the skill around holding space because where do we ever learn that? But holding space is just like a, I can't talk about it without widening out my arms. It's like creating an energetic bowl in which your friend just gets to be, you know, where there's no right, there's no wrong, there's no judgment, there's just witnessing, validation, presence without an agenda. And so I think that our squads, I want our squads to really learn how to kind of show up in that way versus um, the heavy advice giving, the heavy making everybody else bad and wrong. Because even though it may feel like super good in the moment to be like, you're right, tell me all those awful things, um, it's one piece of the, it's one piece of the puzzle. And it can actually, keep us a bit stuck um, because because then what we do, if he was wrong, then I have to find somebody who's right. And in that stance, again, the thing I'm not doing is reckoning with my own hurt and the ways in which hurt, the hurt of today is actually deeply connected with old stuff. There's so much learning in a breakup because the breakup also hurts because it reawakens every other loss in our whole lives. And so there's a lot of richness there that we are not gonna get to if we just stay focused on all of the things that he did wrong. I'm saying he, it could be a she, but just, you know, the whole, my ex did me wrong is a really narrow story. Yeah, I mean, there's so much, there's so much there. What I just got from that was both how, when you're in a hurt space, the kind of support group that you wanna look for, um, there's, a, there's always gonna be a little time and space to to bash somebody who hurts you, I think, right? There's a little, there's the first night, there's whatever, you know, you first tell them and that's what girlfriends tend to do. They're just gonna, they're gonna come to your defense. But I think if we are more awakened, we know that's a really limited time. And then you have to move on past that. And you have to surround yourself with people around you that will just hold space. And again, for people who are not really therapized, holding space means truly just being present and not having any kind of judgment around whatever it is you're saying. If you want to do the bashing, if I'm holding space, I'm not going to join you on that, but I'm going to be really present with you um, and I'm going to be supporting you. Um, but the second piece I got from this too is how to be a friend when someone else is in pain. Like your message just struck me two ways, both how to look for the right support when you're in pain, but also how to be the right support when someone else is in pain. Mm -hmm. Right, 
That's right. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, what else would you say around, you know, we're talking about loving bravely and, and I want you to talk about being brave because I think it ties into being both the person who's hurt and the person who is supporting someone who's hurt. Where did you come up with that title? Why did you pick brave? Why is that the word you chose? Yeah, boy, oh boy, we sure did have a bunch of different titles for this book, but that one really, really um, stuck with us because it is really brave to look at how a moment in time right now connects us to the past, to notice how the outside world is stirring stuff in us. It's so much easier to blame everybody else and to um, make other people wrong, and it's much harder to really look at what's stirring within me. Like our emotions are data. Like they're, they're, there's no such thing as a, I mean, there's no such thing as a good emotion or a bad emotion or a right emotion or a wrong emotion. They're data. They are, our emotions are these shifts that happen inside of us that invite us to our own attention. Um, and so, I think that's part of, you know, if we if we if we loop back to the idea of um, a single mama, you know, she's got there are a lot of data points where she may be at risk of slipping into um, a kind of story about her journey versus just being present to all the emotions that stir for any of us who are parenting and then certainly for those of us who are parenting on our own. Yeah, I love that emotions our data. I love it. That's to me the equivalent of in part one when you were talking about stories, that we all create these stories, we believe stories. Um, it's the same kind of thing, emotions as data. One of the things um, I just thought about, you know, as you were talking is I, I feel like I know a fair amount of people who really don't love themselves. And um, Beyond that being that emotion as data, I, I wonder about that, you know, everybody, I think kind of has heard that statement, like you, you can only give what you've got or you can't love someone else until you love yourself. Do you, A, do you think that's true? And B, how do you work with somebody who, who has some self-loathing or feels terrible about themselves or feels like a failure after a divorce or a breakup? Right, right. Well... I think that the struggle to love ourselves makes 100% sense when we look at the fact that there are entire economies that would crumble if we actually felt good enough in our own skin, right? Like, what would the whole, uh, you know, cosmetic industry do? What would, like, I think the sort of, you know, self-loathing, a sense of inadequacy sells, right? Where we all get on this hamster wheel, and it's not just a female thing, it's a um, men and women may play it out in different ways, but that scramble to feel good enough sells a lot of product and keeps us all striving. So I think the first thing is really just normalizing that because the first thing that shame does is it tells us you are damaged, different, broken, and nobody else experiences it this way. So that's the first thing is just really like leaning into that idea that actually nobody has it all figured out. And to me, at least, the work of self-love is the work uh, is is the work of a lifetime, and it's imperfect. And I don't think it's ever. I mean, certainly, I don't know. I've been at it for a long time, and I'm not done yet. But I have a lot more self-compassion when those old tapes start to play. Right? 
I'm a little bit more savvy around like, aha, I know who you are and I know why you're here. So I can relate differently to my stories of my inadequacy or my stories of my brokenness. I can relate to them differently. I don't quite believe them to the extent that maybe I used to. And I know to meet the story with self-compassion. And self-compassion is talking to myself the way that I would talk to a good friend, right? That's just sort of like noticing my inner dialogue. That's a really big, um, a big piece of it. So to me, it's not like whether or not the self-loathing thoughts come up. It's sort of like, how much are you going to, how much are you going to buy what they're selling? Yeah, I love that. I th I'm thinking about all of the things that you're saying and even, you know, knowing that we are all a work in progress, that sometimes we take some steps back, that sometimes we're harder on ourselves than anybody else is. And I think about that in combination with raising children. And um, I think, you know, really my mission, I think my personal mission in life is to, to help our kids learn to grow, to love themselves and others in really compassionate ways. And, um, you know, right now we have a real crisis with kids and mental health and depression, anxiety and, and suicide even. So how do you think that moms that are listening to this, how do you think that by them working on these kinds of lifelong issues, how do you see that impacting kids and our future generation? Right. I think it's so beautiful. I mean, I think it's so important that the it's, um, the more that we can kind of like sit with our imperfections, the more we're able to be relational with our kids. I think sometimes if I, if I know that in my, in my own parenting, we have um, a 16 year old son and a 14 year old daughter. And I know that I'm much more likely to be judgmental, critical and controlling in my relationship with them. If I'm talking to myself, in a voice that's critical and judgmental. I'm much more likely, if I'm doing it inside my head, I'm gonna play it out in the world. So I, um, and it's not to, it's not about blaming or pointing fingers, but that is just, it, cultivating kindness within is a really important part of it. Um, and some of it is filtering out, some, some of it is learning to push back against the stories, you know, all the kind of like commercialization of parenthood that we are only a good enough parent if we're, you know, doing all these things and getting our kids ready and pushing really hard on them. And I think that that is another kind of story of inadequacy. And I know that I'll do that. I'll notice like I'll get really stirred around like I'm not doing and I'm not doing enough for my kids because I'm not running them hard enough on the weekends or I'm not that's kind of same inadequacy story. It's another place to put that inadequacy story. And it's a way then of projecting my own kind of insecurity about my parenting onto my kids' performance. And so I try to catch that and notice who for whom, for whom is this scramble? And um, it's real dicey. I, I agree. I mean, I think that I love that term you just used, the commercialization of parenthood. So I feel like I have a pretty good vision of what that is, right? Push them hard, perfectionism, be the best that you can, be exposed and do everything. I have a good sense of what that looks like. But if you could tell me, if you could create a definition around what would be the commercialization of love? 
what stories do we get that we're buying into that maybe are unrealistic or difficult to attain? I think that would be so important to spread that message. Yes. Right. We do. I think we do conflate love with opening doors for our kids or sweeping away obstacles for our kids or giving them every possible advantage. We just saw this with the, with the whole college admissions scandal, right? Where I don't, I don't know the interior of those parents' stories, but I imagine there was a conflating of loving you means that I give you every possible advantage, every possible privilege. And I think especially for somebody who's parenting on their own to conflate love and financial advantage is really problematic versus to me, love is I see you and I want to work with you to understand who you are. Um, it's so easy for us as parents to project our own like unfinished, you know, our own unfinished stuff. And especially, you know, if somebody who grew up in a house where their parents really did not see them, really did not have time and energy to really like cultivate that, we may we may overcorrect to kind of take care of a wound that really is our own wound. So um, I think again, it comes back to, can I really see my child for who they are versus through the lens of my own, either stories of inadequacy, my own wounds from my childhood and that is imperfect, but it is certainly worthy for us to try to come back to again and again, like for whom am I doing this? So do you see any difference between loving yourself, loving your child, loving a partner, loving a friend? To you, is love is love is love, or are there different ways in which love shows up in different relationships? <laughs> I think that's a hard question. I know that I get clearer around love when I remember that it's a verb, that love is a verb and it's something that's enacted in the space between people. I um, There's a book, actually my students are reading this book. Um, I teach an undergraduate relationship education class that we were talking about in the last episode. And one of the books my students are reading this quarter is called All About Love and it's by Bell Hooks. And it's from from almost 20 years ago, but it's so good. And she, her definition of love is um, from an old, like one of the first self-help books called The Road Less Traveled mm -hmm. by M. Scott Peck. And he says that love is a commitment to somebody else's spiritual growth. And to me, spiritual has nothing to do, it doesn't have to do with, you know, God or oneness or any of that, but just the idea that loving, when I love you, I'm focused on your growth not just just witnessing your growth, supporting your growth, not deciding what your growth is, not controlling your growth, but just I'm committed to supporting your growth, however that looks. So it's again, I do think that love, part of love is decentering our own experience of that person in order to just kind of like hold space for who they need to be. That's that's different. Right. So so I know you were just talking that through, but when I'm listening to you, I think, okay, so really, not not really, maybe the way love looks, obviously between the way you're parenting, your 14-year-old child looks different than you are when you're loving your husband, but there's a central theme that's the same, which is 
I'm committed to your process. I'm committed to being present to you, to not change you, to accept you for who you are. Because if I can accept you for who you are, you're more likely to accept you for who you are. And that has a trickle down effect. Is, is that an okay interpretation of, of what you were just saying? Yes, I really like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, acceptance is a part of it. And acceptance doesn't mean that I never, I think acceptance doesn't mean with biting my, doesn't equal biting my tongue, right? I can accept you for who you are and still say, you and I have a problem because this isn't working for me or let's look together at this problem we're having. You know, I think that except I think sometimes we 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 conflate acceptance with just like putting a weird awkward smile on our faces and not ever saying anything. So I think acceptance can be I accept you and I'm really struggling right now. You and I have a real difference of opinion opinion on this, or you and I need pretty different things around how we, whatever, share space, navigate household chores. Like that's different, you know, those, those are different things. Yeah, I love the way you just explained that. And with that, we are wrapping our part two, and you have shared so much. I know there's more in your book, Loving Bravely, and I hope people will go out and buy it and keep learning about love. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.